Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Do you ever think about whether you'll be as comfortable financially as your parents in the years ahead? Will that ever happen? Because the facts right now as they stand aren't good. And one economist is warning if Australia doesn't sort this out soon, an entire generation, your generation, is effed. That's their word. It's not mine. We're going to be speaking with that economist in a bit. It's a really interesting chat, so make sure you stay tuned for that one. We're also going to be chatting about some new research that's found online retailers have been making some pretty wild claims about vaping. We'll get into that later. First, though. Hack. It felt very much like I had been kicked right between the legs real hard with a steel cat boot. On Triple J. Herpes. It's something people don't really think about until it shows up. Maybe you've been through this. There's a whole range of emotions figuring out what it is, how you got it. Even more confusing if you had no idea you caught it ages ago, just flares up out of nowhere. Well, for some people, herpes pops up as their body is fighting another infection, something like COVID. Maybe this has happened to you. Did another sickness lead to a big flare-up of herpes? Maybe you didn't know you had it until then. Let me know, 0439757555. In a minute, we're going to chat to a doctor, an expert, who will be able to answer some questions. But first, here's Kimberly Price with more. So when my GP told me that's what it was, I <laughs> couldn't really work out how that was possible. That's Sam. She was diagnosed with HSV, a.k.a. herpes, in November. Now, there's two types of herpes, HSV1 and 2, and most of the time, people don't have any symptoms at all. What's weird is Sam hadn't had sex for a while and hadn't been told by any of her previous partners that they had herpes. I sort of knew it could be dormant for a long time, but yeah, I wasn't quite expecting it to be potentially years and then it can just sort of spring up out of the blue. When Sam was dating, she said she had regular sexual health tests. But since then, she hasn't been seeing anyone for a couple of years, so she hadn't been tested. She thought she was fine and then she came down with flu-like symptoms. A couple of days later, the infection appeared. It felt very much like I had been kicked right between the legs real hard with a steel cat boot um, and that sort of achy, burny sort of feeling for probably three or four days. Following her diagnosis of herpes, just two days later, Sam returned a positive rat for COVID. And Sam's not the only one whose herpes infection has flared up alongside another infection. Any viral infection or any infection for any matter can make other infections more likely to happen or to recur. That's Dr Christopher Fairley, or KIT, from the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic. Now, for those of you who don't know, herpes looks like red, white or yellow little bumps or ulcers. HSV-1 typically infects the mouth, while HSV-2 likes the genital area. But it is entirely plausible that an outbreak of herpes might happen more commonly after another infection, because there's certainly evidence of that in the past. Kit says previous studies reveal pneumonia could bring about a herpes outbreak if someone has the infection already. And remember, herpes is one of those things that can be in your body for a while without showing any symptoms. Over the past 50 years, herpes has evolved along with the way we engage in sex. 
oral sex has become more common. And so what we're seeing now is many young people are not coming with genital herpes from penile vaginal sex, but they receive oral sex. And because they haven't had type 1 before, they're susceptible to getting in the genital area. But transmission of herpes is actually very low. Kit says there's about a 20% chance of a woman contracting it in a year if they have sex with a man who has an outbreak of herpes and only 10% chance of a woman passing it off. If you've got ulcers, either in your genital area or your mouth, you are highly transmissible and you shouldn't be having contact. There is a lack of research around same-sex partners as well, but studies suggest as long as there isn't an outbreak and you're being safe, there isn't much chance of a problem. If you were having sex with someone and you used a condom the whole time and you had no lesions present, but the chance you'd pass it on would be extremely low. And treatment is easy, with both short-term and long-term options available if necessary. Get to a doctor soon if you get gentle ulcers that are very painful. But the stigma around contracting any type of herpes is still prevalent, especially for Sam. I was actually a little bit surprised by my own feelings around it because I am very sex positive. A lot of people think that having an STD means you can't have sex, that you're dirty. And Sam felt those things about herself. Like I did get that sort of, all those stigmas that you hear about being too promiscuous, unclean, unsafe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even though I know that's not about myself, I still felt those things internally. After working through her diagnosis, Eventually, Sam got over the stigma. They are really ingrained, those kind of stigmas. When you're confronted with it personally, it's amazing what can pop back up for you. Sam said she was worried about what her diagnosis would mean for herself, but after seeking medical help and research, she knows there's nothing to worry about. As long as you're safe and you're communicative about it all, it doesn't have to be the end of everything. Hack on Triple Jack. Kimberly Price with that story and we got some messages coming through. Someone says, I got my first flare-up of herpes in my first year of uni as a stress response. It was the worst pain of my life. I want to get into this a bit more now, get the rundown from an expert. Dr. Vincent Cornelise is an expert in sexual health medicine. He's with the Kirby Institute and he's with us now. G'day, Vincent. Thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. How long can herpes stay dormant in your body before it flares up and you notice it? Well, it can stay dormant for years. And I guess it's important for people to know a little bit about how herpes um, becomes dormant. Now, of course, as we probably all know, herpes infection is contracted through the skin. So usually um, the skin might have a little crack in it. and it, So it's more likely to happen through genital skin because the genital skin is a little bit um, not as sturdy as the skin everywhere else on your body. And then from the skin, it then travels along the nerve roots and can then lie dormant in... Uh, the nerve roots near the spine. Um, and then when it reactivates, it travels from those nerve roots back usually to about the same patch of skin where it originally entered because um, that's where those nerves communicate to. Um, and so to answer your question, it can lie dormant for years. And as your um, story highlighted and as your caller um, highlighted as well, it often then reactivates at a time when the body is under stress. And that can be physical stress from for example, other infections, um, or it can be psychological stress. Right. Um, and that's been one of the theories about, you know, why um, herpes outbreaks might seem more frequent during something like the COVID pandemic. 
But we still don't know a whole lot around that, right? Like there's still research that I'm guessing is being done now. You mean around the COVID connection yeah. to herpes outbreaks? Yeah, there is. Um, so there have been a few um, case reports or case series where people have described numbers of patients who've been uh, who've had herpes outbreaks, recurrent outbreaks in the setting of COVID infections. Um, but the sort of there's not a lot of work that's yet been done looking at that link, and there's there's a few different theories as to what that link might be. So one of the theories is that COVID itself um, or COVID infection can result in some immune suppression. So that, in other words, that your immune system is not working very well during and perhaps after a COVID infection. Um, and that, that then means that the herpes virus has got a better chance of causing another outbreak because your immune system is not controlling it as well. Another theory is that you know, COVID and the associated pandemic and the lockdowns and everything else, all the changes that have happened in the world, I don't need to explain these to uh, your listeners, but um, that all these changes have been very stressful for many people and that the resulting stress from living through COVID, uh, that that itself might result in some uh, immune suppression and hence more outbreaks of herpes virus. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, herpes has caused me so much self-hate. I got it from oral sex. It's affected me mentally for a very long time. Thank you for talking about this topic today. How easy is it to manage herpes if you've got it, Vincent? Um, It's very easy. Um, But so medically, it's very easy. We've got very um, good medications, got, you know, essentially no side effects. Um, You can either just treat the episodes when you have them, or if you get frequent outbreaks, if you get frequent episodes, then you can go on suppressive treatment where you take one tablet a day, like I said, without side effects, and that's really effective. So that's all very easy, but your, your caller makes a really important point, and that is that I think it's still very stressful for people to have herpes infections. Um, and I think that stress is, I mean, it's partly, of course, knowing that um, you've acquired an infection, but I think a large part of that stress is a result of stigma. And we see that sort of stigma with all sexually transmitted infections. Um, and I think that's really important for us as a society to talk about and to try to address because it's completely unnecessary um, for the stigma to be present. And the stigma itself causes harm it you know it stops people from being able to talk about their sexually transmitted infections including their herpes infections and it also stops people seeking care when they um, might well um, be able to get some really good medical care to improve their their situation we really appreciate your insight into all of this we know that a lot of people are impacted by this they're messaging in now they're telling us and and they're wanting um more discussion around it dr vincent cornelise from the kirby institute thank you very much for joining us on hack thank you hack cost of living is rising people were already struggling before that because of the pandemic basically people are screwed on triple j What does financial security mean for you? Like, is it owning your own place? Is it having a big pile of cash stashed away somewhere? Or is it just being able to get by week to week without stressing out? If you're a young Australian, chances are that's all a bit of a dream at the moment because with everything happening, cost of living crisis, rent hikes we're always talking about, inaccessible housing market, crappy wages, it all seems a bit impossible. So when are you going to get there? Will you ever get there? Because there are warnings that you, the most educated generation in Australia's history, could be the first generation to be worse off than their parents. Not good. 
So someone who's been looking into this is economist Alison Pennington. We've spoken to Alison a lot in the past on Hack, but she's written a book just now with a pretty blunt title. It's called Gen Eft, and she's with us now. Hey, Alison. Hey. Gen Eft. I mean, (laughs) it's a pretty good title. I kind of just want to say it. I can't, but I kind (laughs) of just want to say it. But it's very, you can feel it. You can feel everything when it comes to that title. I remember just speaking to you about a year ago and you said, I'm working on this thing that I think that you and your audience will be pretty interested in. And it's true. It's telling the story of how disadvantaged this generation is in so many respects. You've been crunching the numbers. How bad is the situation for young Aussies right now? Well, if we take just the two key pillars of security and, you know, what we understand is the fair go at the heart of Australia, jobs and housing, it's pretty clear that young people which I define as millennials and younger, they are effed. They are on, they're on the arse end of the increase in insecure work, which has exploded. They are generation rent. They are far less likely, um, unlike, you know, our counterparts in the 1980s to be able to get secure housing. If we don't have those fundamental building blocks underneath us, it's very difficult to plan for lives the UN Declaration of Human Rights understands that secure housing is actually at the at the heart of the right to a private life. And I think for a lot of young people, they can see what, what it means to, to lose that, that capacity to make decisions in their life because they don't have the that security. And so I, th- I guess what I'm, my book's pointing out is that it's, it's an economic issue, but it, it bleeds out into all aspects of our lives. And it results in, you know, all of the very high levels of mental health problems we see among young people. And, you know, also just tapping out, like apathy, seeing it all as too difficult. And I, I guess I wanted to pull these all these threads together to say to young people, I know it's hard and the reason why it's hard is because you are being shafted. Um, but I have to say, David, I did put a question mark at the end of the title. It's Gen F'd question mark. Okay. Um, and and I, I want to leave it hopeful and open and, and the point is we can turn this around. Well, that's a good kind of distinction to make. Generally, when young people are having these conversations with their parents or grandparents around a dinner table, it's all, it gets into this situation where it's a battle between generations, it's who's had it worse off, it's this kind of competition and it's really hard to get anywhere with the discussion because mm. there's this constant comparison that goes on. What, what do you make of that? In the 80s, early 80s, the cost of a house was around three times the median income. It's now eight and a half times. So it's clear that purely individual hard work does not translate into the substance of life that people need. We have people in jobs who cannot earn enough to get a roof over their head. And that's at the the heart of the social compact that older Australians benefited from. They benefited from equality promoting policies that governments had in those times, which have now eroded. And I, I think that the intergenerational warfare is a go-to. It's it's an easy story. I think the media really likes to do it. But the, the point is that the majority of older Australians, uh, it's not in their interest to maintain the current status quo, right? They want their kids to do better and their kids' kids to do better. And we do, we really do have to kind of overcome this the intergenerational warfare um, and those tropes. And in part, that's by putting numbers in front of people's faces. And I hope that my book gives 
gives people some evidence to have those conversations. But it's it's also by acknowledging that people benefit when we are divided uh, and it's in our interest to all work together to, to make things better. In your book, you talk about how many young people are locked out of our housing system that's dominated by rich older people and how Australia's housing market is a closed shop, an exclusive club. Has it always been like that? Not at all. I mean, after the the post-war period into the 70s, really, the government was working to build houses and rent them out for cheap through social housing and public housing and also give like, good loan conditions that helped people get into the market. So they essentially they made sure that supply kept up with the people who wanted it with, with demand. But what they what government policies started to do over time is they government stepped away from building houses, from providing the things that people needed, and then they shifted to these insane levels of, of tax concessions and incentives for people who held property already, which I call, you know, this exclusive wealth builders club because the door was slammed shut and if you held property then you were part of that club and you did better and better. So they pumped up insider gains to the point where we have $14 billion worth of housing tax concessions that are flowing every year through capital gains tax exemptions and negative gearing exemptions, uh, negative gearing benefits. And then so after you've cut supply, then the insider gains were pumped up and then all this extra fuel on the fire came through first home buyer grants because, of course, governments had to deal with the political crisis that their policies were locking out young people from being able to actually get into the housing market to begin with. And so we've had throughout the uh, 2010s $20 billion in, in first home buyer's grants, which all, all that has done is just lifted prices at the margins, lifted prices at the, at the lower end. It's created this manufactured false scarcity and being able to sell your labour in a, in a job and earn enough to get a home, that is at the heart of Australia's egalitarian um, sense of self. And we are basically walking to the cliff edge. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with economist Alison Pennington about her new book, Gen Eft, which is all about how younger generations are eft, <laughs> um, perhaps, maybe, but also what can be done to deal with that. Alison, I think a lot of young Australians have just resigned themselves to the fact that they may not experience the same success as their parents in many respects. What's the kind of danger there? Historically, if a generation goes backwards from their parents, they revolt. You know, they, that's, it's, people should be angry. <laughs> they are seeing their living standards slipping away from them. There is a danger in apathy because I think we are all custodians of a country in which we want benefits and opportunities to be available for everyone. And I think that means you have to protect and defend them and expand them. And there's only one way up. I, I Something I write about in the book is I've, this, I've discovered this phenomenon of what the inheritocracy means, which is people who stand to gain significant assets from their families, you know, wealth, and essentially like become more apathetic or unwilling or less able or unwanting to to do anything about being effed because deep down they know they're going to inherit something, a little nest egg down the end. But waiting for mum and dad, 
you know, to kick the bucket is definitely not <laughs> the solution because, you know, like this is this type of system where you are waiting for uh, to inherit is much more akin to a, you know, feudal-like class system. And it's it's not becoming of a, a modern advanced economy, which is what Australia is supposed to be and one that is supposed to provide the opportunity for everyone. And it's not just about at work, but definitely you should be able to earn enough in a job that gives you the capacity to improve your life. We have to imagine doing better than our parents because they had a lot of issues in their time and we've got questions to solve in our time too. Do you think there are any incentives for governments to fix this problem for young people? And do you think it's just going to, you talked about us like heading towards a cliff edge. Do you think it's going to change when we inevitably see more millennials, Gen Zs in parliament making the decisions? So there's something I write about is there's been a tendency to use youth politics as a, a way to siphon off young people from power. And so, like, whether you look at major parties, political parties, this faux universalism of, like, the youth experience, you know, like, there's a, we're all very different, we've got different experiences and a lot of mess in our lives which aren't always represented by these kind of chosen political voices. And, you know, that's... I, I think that we've seen a failure of that corralled kind of s- separated vein of special youth politics. And already, like, we are seeing what it means when young people become the majority of voters. <laughs> like we saw in the recent Victorian election that millennials end up making the largest voter block and were, you know, decisive in, in that state election. And, you know, young people played a really massive role in the change of the federal government in our recent federal election too. So I think though that we, we can't wait for just young people to become the voters. We need to actually be looking at how to build collective capacity and power in all parts of our lives, um, including on the job through, you know, joining your union and being active in your community and being active in local level politics as well. It's, it's got to be a multi-level effort, but I, I certainly do think that current politicians are listening and they're going to have to listen a lot more to young people's issues because we are also workers, right? Like, we pay taxes. Well, it's not all grim. I mean, like, it's a grim picture generally, but as you say, you've got these ideas that you think could help tackle these issues. The tagline of the book is how young Australians can reclaim their uncertain futures. Are you pretty positive looking forward that that is going to be able to happen? There's no alternative in my mind. (laughs) So there's, as I said, there's only one way up. Oh, I think there is a bunch of things that we can be doing to to make things better. Making housing more accessible and affordable, big public social housing builds, you know, in, improving our income support system, making jobs better. I see this moment actually as a kind of three birds, one stone moment in that we can tackle the cost of living and inflation crisis. We can build a better world that prepares us for the climate crisis and we can start investing in people again and rebuild you know, a modern 21st century fair go that actually gives people economic opportunity to improve their lot over time. Look, it's a really, really interesting read. It's also the good thing, it's not an overwhelming read or a big read. It's just over 100 pages. You can burn through this in a weekend. Jen Eft, it's out now. Author, economist, Alison Pennington, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. It's a pleasure. Cheers. Hack. 
on Triple Jack. We've got a lot of messages coming through, as you can imagine. Someone says, partner and I have resigned ourselves to no kids and renting for life because wages suck and we can't get out of this hole. Another person says, homegirls spitting straight facts. Yep, Alison's done all the research and she's got the book out. Christian says, I gave up on ever buying a home several years ago. Government doesn't care. Older gens don't care. No one cares that we've been left behind. There's a lot more we could say on that one. The book is out there, though. Go read it. It's a really interesting read. Hack. I didn't think of myself as a smoker. The vaping just makes it seem like it's nothing. But I couldn't go longer than 10, 15 minutes without hitting it. On Triple J. You know, it's probably not going to surprise you if I say the marketing around vapes can sometimes be a little questionable. But some new research has found the kinds of claims being made to sell vapes to people in Australia can be downright lies. Things like they can improve your breathing in a matter of days or how they're made to look environmentally friendly, even though we know that's not the case at all. Heaps of you vape. We even know the New South Wales Premier came out and surprised a lot of people the other day when he said he vaped in an interview. So what needs to happen to stop these bizarre and often false messages? Dr Becky Freeman is an Associate Professor of Public Health at the University of Sydney and the co-leader of the Generation Vape Project, and she's with us now. Becky, thanks for joining us on Hack. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. It's pretty incredible that online retailers are getting away with making these false claims about vaping. Does it surprise you? No, it doesn't. Um, I wish it did. But no, the vaping promotions online uh, online are incredibly um, common. They link themselves to clearly um, young adult and youth-oriented activities like music festivals and concerts and motorsport. Uh, they want to be the new new tobacco. They're taking what they you know learned in the tobacco industry all those decades ago and are now applying it to vaping marketing. Yeah, there are parallels with smoking, right? Because in the early days of smoking, that was marketed as being healthy too and people believed it. Yeah, I think, you know, we had the, I won't say the brand name, but there was, you know, that cigarette that, that doctors prefer, prefer, you know, what everything's old is new again. And it's it's just shocking to me that we're repeating the same mistakes of the past, that we haven't learned anything. Vaping's only been widespread for about a decade or so. So the reality is we don't know exactly how dangerous it is, dangerous it is right now. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah. And look, and it's even a shorter period of time in Australia. I mean, vaping was really a fringe issue up until around COVID, up until around 2020. And it's just in the past couple of years, we've seen it absolutely explode in, you know, 13 to 17 year olds and 18 to 24 year olds. Do we know how many people are buying their vapes online? I think it's important to think about what we mean when we say online. So if you are, you know, wanting a vape for a Friday night out, you're not going to order one from, you know, New Zealand or China and get it shipped to you. You're you're going to, you know, Snapchat or text somebody. So yes, while these products are being accessed online, it's products that are already illegally here in Australia. What about the claim, like one of the claims that was um, seen on one of these websites is that vaping is 95% less dangerous than smoking. Is that something that you've heard a lot in your research around this and what young people are hearing? That's one of the most sticky factoids about vaping and is absolutely not true. That number is completely made up. It was developed by a consensus with a group of people in the UK, many of whom had very close ties to the vaping industry. It's not based on science. Right. Okay. Australia's Health Minister Mark Butler's been talking with state and territory health ministers recently Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, discuss vaping regulation. What do you think needs to happen? 
I think it's pretty clear. It's pretty straightforward. We have good laws in Australia that are completely being upended by a giant loophole. You should need, technically, you need a prescription to get a nicotine-containing vaping product legally in Australia. That should be watertight. The problem is that non-nicotine-containing vapes can be sold pretty much anywhere to anyone. And so when you go into local tobacconist, convenience store, and purchase a vape, it often contains nicotine. It's masquerading as a non-nicotine vape. And when health authorities sees these products, test them, lo and behold, they contain nicotine. So it's completely undermining the prescription model. If we were to treat all vaping products the same way as nicotine ones, get them out of the local tobacconist, out of your local convenience store, so they're not so accessible to young people, we would go a long ways to cleaning up this big mess that we have on our hands. We very much appreciate your insight into all of this. You do a lot of research into vaping the effect on Mm -hmm. young people. Dr. Becky Freeman, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Hack on Triple J. And that is all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.